0: welcome back to crazy faith talk i'm steve and i'm erica And we are, only two of us are on a microphone today, uh, because we are wishing well our colleague uh, Sarah, who is often around the table and who will once again come around to the table in the near future. We are celebrating that there's a happy and healthy baby born in her family, and so um, we'll let her tell whatever things she wants to tell about that, which is background, but the reason she's not here today as we record is we are wishing her well as she welcomes a new baby into her world. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, we felt it was worth uh, continuing on conversations, but with a new series of, of um, things to talk about so um, Erica tell us where you want to go today.
1: So uh, the next couple of episodes we're going to be looking at um, our backgrounds the Methodist and, and Lutheran churches and kind of some important folks that that uh, led up to those not only John Wesley for for the Methodist and Martin Luther for the Lutherans but maybe some other folks too that um, had a real maybe turning point in our denominations and, and the growth of our um, what, what is now Lutheranism and Methodism. So uh, we're going to get started today with a good old Methodist, since the Lutherans have had the um, the podcast for the last couple of weeks with their own personal stories. Uh, so we're going to get back to, to my denomination. And um, if you know anything about Methodism, you know that uh, John and Charles Wesley were the founders of the Methodist movement back in the 1700s. But honestly, the more I've, I've done some study of this, and especially when I went over to England and got to spend time in Wesley's home in Epworth and, and learned about his mother a little bit there, uh, I think a lot of what John and Charles did to help form Methodism was informed by their mother, Susanna. So uh, John and Charles were two of 19 children born to Susanna. Wow. Yes. Um, nine of them, unfortunately, died as infants, but that it's the time period, um, and Susanna ran a very, very strict household. Um, John and Charles's father, Samuel, wasn't always around. He was a he was a pastor. He was a priest, just like they were in the Anglican Church. Uh, but he had a problem with money, and found himself in debtor's prison. A couple different times leading Susanna to raise the children by her by herself and so she ran a very strict household very orderly household and made sure that she spent time with each one of her kids at some point during the week how she did this I'm not really sure um but she is one of those hardcore women of the 1700s that I have a lot of respect for and I think the orderliness of their household eventually led to what John and Charles did with the holy club Mm. um and the whole reason we're called Methodist now was because actually it was an insult back when when John and Charles were at Oxford, um, that Oxford college. Um, they started this thing called the Holy Club and they had these meetings that would gather together and they were very orderly in the way they did things. They were very methodical in the way they did things. And so folks would often, you know, they would call them Methodist to make fun of how methodical they were because they're... A little OCD. <laughs>
0: gotcha. So it's funny, we'll, we'll have to talk in a little bit maybe about how many different movements in religious history began as insults like their names. So uh-huh. even, even Christianity, that's meant to be you know, lobbed as a criticism of us, and then we wear it as a mm-hmm. name. And same with Lutheranism and Methodists as well. There, there's something powerful when you start to own the insult and say, okay, I'll wear that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, John and Charles were both Anglican priests, um, never intended to leave the Anglican Church of England. Um, but much like Luther, you know, would, um, you know, just wanted to reform it, you know, wanted to get people back, um, to the way things used to be, you know, and, and bring about reform. And so they, they started the Holy Club, which then eventually as the Methodist societies grew, they, you know, the societies were kind of, uh, a, It's kind of like a church, but they had their Sunday morning Anglican worship. Mm -hmm. People were required to be part of that, and then they met in societies, and then they had classes and bands and and all these other fun things that a metho nerd like me absolutely loves. um, But most people find it pretty boring. Uh, But when the movement came to the States, um, there were two main people that were involved in that. So again, Wesley was an Anglican priest until the day he died. But as this Methodist movement kind of began to grow and, and, and really took off in, in England and especially in London, um, you know, he realized that he needed to have preachers that could preach besides himself. And And eventually they, they, they sent this movement over to the States, uh, where Wesley had been before. He tried, he was a missionary over here in Georgia, tried to reach the Indians, Totally flopped at that. Had an incident with a girl that he fell in love with, and she didn't love him back. He refused her communion. Her father kicked him out of the colony of Georgia. You know, it's one of our skeletons in the closet. Time. <laughs> yes, because you know,
0: Beauty and the Priest. <laughs> Beauty and the
1: Priest. Um, let's just say John did not have good luck with the ladies. Uh, he never did marry, uh, that I can recall, because yeah, that incident really just turned him off of women. But Um, He sent two gentlemen, Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch, over to the states. And in 1784, both of them were made superintendents within the Methodist movement, which is a title we still have today. um, I serve on the Indiana District in the Western Pennsylvania Conference, and I have a district superintendent. Um, And they were kind of like what is now known as bishops, but because Wesley believed that, you know, bishops were reserved for the Anglican Church. You know, he gave them this lower title. Um, so they they came over um, to the United States uh, in, in the 1780s. And I got a chance when I was in England a couple years ago to see the port in which they left. It's a little place called Pill, England. And this port, Steve, I tell you, is no larger than the high school football stadium.
0: Mm.
1: It's tiny. And from one of the guys that um, had gone on this trip with the ordinance multiple years in a row, most of the time when they when they go, and usually around somewhere mid-April, the port is so small that there's not even water in it, and these boats are just sitting sideways in the mud. Wow. Uh, it was full of water the day that we went, and it was really awesome to see this place that started the Methodist movement in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, but they traveled to the colonies, and... Um, In 1784, there was this thing that the Methodists know as the Christmas Conference that happened in Baltimore. And that's um, where Coke and Asbury were elected as superintendents of the church. They were later named bishops. Um, And Asbury, I I like Asbury partially because I went to a school named after him. You know, Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. Asbury is awesome. Um, He is known as like the founder of Methodism in the United States. And some really cool things about him. Um, he in, in 1792 he organized the first general conference. Which thank you, Asbury. We're that's that's a treat and a fun thing that we do every four years. That has been interesting in the last few for the Methodist Church. But it said that he rode 6,000 miles a year mm. um, throughout the colonies and um, well, what would be the early United States all over horseback preaching everywhere Um, under his, his reign in the, in the States under his leadership, the Methodist movement went from 1200 members to 214,000 members um, and 700 ordained pastors. And there are statues of of Asbury all, all over the nation. One of them being in Wilmore uh, where there's Asbury seminary and Asbury college. Uh, But there's one in DC um, that was dedicated by Calvin Coolidge and I think, let me see here. Um, and, and I mean, it's just, it's really neat, because it's one of the few, maybe the only statue of a religious figure on horseback within the capital, mm. uh, the capital city limits. And um, Coolidge said this at the, at the dedication, um, on the foundation of a religious civilization which he, Francis Asbury, sought to build, build, our country has enjoyed greater blessing of liberty and prosperity than was ever before the lot of man. These cannot continue if we neglect the work which he did. We cannot depend on the government to do the work of religion. We cannot escape a personal responsibility for our own conduct. We cannot regard those as wise or safe counselors in public affairs who deny these principles and seek to support the theory that societies can succeed when the individual fails. So... Um, that's just something I, I really like about um, Asbury, you know, like the, the fact that he has a statue in D.C. Because most of the statues in D.C., you know, they're generals of various wars, you know, from the Civil War and the Revolutionary War, the whole way up until mm-hmm. modern day wars. But Asbury, as um, this amazing man who helped kind of form the nation early on, but not as one of the founding fathers, mm-hmm. but at the, mm-hmm. form the religious side of our nation early on, Um you know, for him to be honored in D.C. Is, is a really cool thing. So, that's one of our, for me, that's a, a proud thing for us as Methodists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so can I ask um, a couple of questions just sure. hearing this this storytelling? Like the the the, the very very first um, inklings of what became Methodism start around the the Wesley brothers mm-hmm. and their Holy Club, and that they were looking to uh, create certain kinds of reforms in... uh, My impression has always been in the piety and life and faith of individual Christians, that it was less, less about structural reform and more about yep, we're going to keep being Anglican and that's mm-hmm. still our Sunday thing, we're not looking to change that, yeah. but in the rest of our lives so th- what, what was it that, that prompted them? What, what's your sense of, what, what did that look like and what, what, what would have happened if I had the opportunity to be in the 18th century in London to visit oh, a holy club? Like, could I, if I was an outsider or did I, do you have to like, be specially invited? What, would, what does that even look like?
1: The Holy Club, I think, um, you know, and, and I probably should have paid more attention to Methodist history and seminary. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Dr. Kinghorn. Um, but it was basically kind of about accountability. You know, the, the thing that Methodists were known for early on were their classes and bands, which were small groups. Um, bands were, uh, classes were a little bit larger groups, usually 10, 12 people, mixed genders, mixed um, between married and singles, bands were usually three or four people, all the same gender, and either all married or all single. Uh, and and all those groups were were basically to hold one another accountable to living out the Christian life. Okay. Um. You know, making sure that you're reading scripture, that you're praying, that um, you're you're taking care of the poor and doing whatever you can to help those less fortunate than yourselves. Uh, because at this point, you know, Wesley, it it was kind of We've talked about this in, in different episodes. Um, church had been kind of like you just go and you sit and then you leave. Okay. You know, it, it's one of those, it's the socially acceptable thing to do on Sunday. Gotcha. But okay. how you live your your life, you know, Monday through Saturday might not always reflect what you were supposed to be reflecting from Sunday. Okay. And so that's what Wesley was trying to do. The Holy Club started with John and Charles and I believe a few of their friends um, from Oxford. Um, But as the movement grew, I mean, anyone could join. Mm -hmm. Any Anglican could join a society. And then to be part of society, you had to be part of a a class. Um, And a few were chosen to be part of bands because bands were really intense, really how is it with your soul kind of kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyone could, that was a good Anglican could be a part of this. Mm -hmm. So even as somebody who wasn't, you know, maybe close with the Wesleys or, um, you know, if you were Anglican, you could, which was... But the well, church in the same, england i mean church, that's church, yeah church. so like the,
0: the setting here is important because uh, you know as as we tell different parts of our of our church history so i mean here in the united states we have we've uh, grown up in a culture that deliberately didn't have a state church and mm-hmm. even though we could say there's like been this unofficial assumption of well there's a lot of christians so there's a lot of places where like the culture sort of has footprints left from like uh, mm-hmm. the marks of of Uh, uh, Christian uh, practice or or, uh, timekeeping. There's no state church. And on the other hand... For a lot of European history, there were state churches of Mm -hmm. different branches in different countries and things. So you run into the problem, especially in places like that, of to be a good citizen meant to be a member Mm -hmm. of such and such a church. And we could say there's probably still a default, like, unspoken kind of uh, assumption in a lot of places in America. To be a good Christian, you should be also a good citizen or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, But, man, even more so in seventeen hundreds England or for that matter in um in Germany in yeah. and and that it's the the setting you're talking about is a little bit different than uh what uh what my traditional story talks about within within the Lutheran family tree where there's just the Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. as a viable option if you went over to say Greece or or uh, other places there would have been the orthodox tradition mm-hmm. too but that wasn't a live option for for folks like a Luther and there weren't different state churches. It was the church, you mm-hmm. know, capital C, the Roman Catholic Church, because it was centuries before the Wesleys and before the Church of England. Um, but again, there's this sort of weird, everybody by virtue of being um, a, a, baptized is also then a citizen of your country or the mm-hmm. Holy Roman Empire yeah. or whatever. And that that bring some baggage with it and that it can just be, well, yeah, once upon a time my name is written down in a book that I'm also a citizen and a member of the church mm-hmm. and, that, and it never makes a difference to me. So that, the, that kind of structure creates this particular kind of problem that you're going to end up with what a... a Bonhoeffer would would call that sort of a cheap grace kind of a yeah I can i can absolutely uh, I, I, in name yeah i'm I'm on a list of a membership of a church, but churches make a difference in anything i do mm-hmm. so that that problem repeats itself through church history in lots of places, but that's the the background for for the wesleys then mm-hmm. um and do you get the sense that they were were there were there did they diagnose a reason why they felt like there was a need for this because there were so many apparently people who didn't have this sort of fire, passionate sort of connection to their faith life. Did they see that hey, if, if that's happening, what's wrong with the way we're practicing our faith that has led to it? Or it was just, oh, this might happen, so here's how we're going to fix it. How, how, how did that... I think Genesis?
1: part of it came from Wesley uh, questioned his own salvation a lot okay, um, until his Aldersgate moment, which was 17... <sighs> I'm not going to remember recall the date right now, but it was, I want to say 1730s, but that might be too early. Um, you know, Wesley was, was an ordained priest within the Anglican Church, and yet for many years in his ministry, he wasn't sure that he himself had been saved. Mm, okay, And so I think part of this kind of came out of that, like just trying to figure out, um, you know, where where he stood with God and what, okay. maybe trying to create a, a way of a little bit of works righteousness, you know, in okay. a sense. Um, but then eventually, um, you know, he, he ran into the Moravians when he was coming back from Georgia, back to England and, and was really interested in the way that they handled themselves and their faith. Cause there was this huge storm that came up and, um, they were very calm. They were down in the bottom of the boat, and they were just praying and singing. They were very calm, and he's like, "How can you be like so calm in the midst of this mm-hmm. chaos?" You know, mm-hmm. much like Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and um, and it was their faith that kept them calm. And so one day he he's walking down Aldersgate Street, and he pops into a Moravian um, where they're reading Luther's preface to the to Romans. Romans uh-huh. Um, and as Wesley standing there listening to this and hearing this, he realized that he, he himself, as his journal would say, had been saved and his heart was strangely warmed. And so I think this was just kind of his trying to work out his own salvation and figure, out, okay, what does it look like for me to be a Christian? Mm. What, what kind of practices do I need to be doing to be a good, faithful Christian? Because, you know, what, I'm preaching every Sunday. I'm trying to lead the church and I'm not feeling any mm. of it.
0: Do, do you know, in the chronology, does the Holy Club thing come after Aldersgate, or is he already doing the Holy Club thing and then Aldersgate?
1: I believe it's the Holy Club, then Aldersgate, because okay. the Holy Club was during his Oxford years, okay. so that okay. would have been his training for ministry. Okay. One of the things
0: I always find interesting in, in looking at how different movements or, or that may become denominations flourish is that sometimes there's a definitive spiritual experience mm-hmm. moment, and then what comes out of that... And does it look like is is it trying to recreate the the fire the intensity of of that moment or what's it like and it's interesting to to think that he was already doing this disciplined life of the Christian faith and then later has this Aldersgate thing and and yet mm-hmm. that he doesn't say well uh i i've been trying to do that holy club thing all this time and it, it, it wasn't until i was hanging out with moravians that i had this heartstrings warm thing i'll give up on uh, the whole, the holy club idea but no the idea of structure and discipline and order of things continues it just mm-hmm. sort of morphs or, or it, it continues and also he makes room for what's happened to him in alder's case yeah
1: the holy club officially formed in 1729 i just looked this up online and then um his Aldersgate experience was 1738. So okay, I was right. Okay. It was in the, I thought it was a 1730. So, I yeah. mean, it was a, well, yeah. you know, cause again, um, Oxford would have been his training for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he went to, to Christ church in Oxford. Um, and you know, he, he's trying to, to, to figure out, you know, what it means to be a priest, to be a good Anglican priest and is questioning everything about himself until he has this moment uh, on that road. And, and, thanks to Luther, we have you know, our famous phrase, of our hearts are strangely warped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So.
0: Now, can I ask, what's your impression on, like, I, when I think about what Anglican, or in, in this country, Episcopal worship mm-hmm. looks like, um, who, who trace their roots back to the Church of England, which in many ways traces its roots through Roman Catholic piety mm-hmm. as well, and, and in in worship and in sensibility and all that, um, th- that, that has a distinctive sort of flavor, often... Yes often very uh, attuned to um, uh, liturgical details and mm-hmm. uh, keeping a feast and mm-hmm. uh, quite a concern for for ritual. Um, and I, I don't mean that pejoratively or complimentary, that just, I think that's, that's yeah. fair to say. And when I think of Methodism, uh, I think there's a wide variety. Sometimes mm-hmm. it skews very, very much like that and would own, yep, we are really just a branch of the Anglican tradition mm-hmm. that happens to do other things, and others that would be like, nope, we've chucked uh, pyramids and liturgical year and things like that, and are much more like, um, and that th- th- wouldn't be noticeably different as far as the, the way worship looks from uh, a Baptist or non denominational church yep. and, and everywhere in between. Um, do you get the sense that, like, Wesley himself? Um, where the, the early folks like Coke and Asbury would have weighed in on like, no, it's really important to have one particular style. It, or would they have even framed the question that way? I mean, we tend to live in a culture that treats these like just brand choices. And mm-hmm. like, well, if you like high church, go here. If you like low church, go there. It doesn't really matter. Like, like you can have Coke or Pepsi or Sprite. How, how, how would these early Methodist leaders have thought about that? So
1: there was a, a book of worship okay. that came over to the Americas with Coke and Asbury that would have been very much like what they had in England maybe slightly less formal only because in England where you had a priest at every parish, sure. um, once we came to the Americas and part of the reason why Asbury traveled 6,000 miles every year was, you know, you didn't always have a, an ordained priest at your, at your worship space. They, sure. they met in homes, they, you know, it was a circuit rider area, um, you know, and being, being again out of the Anglican tradition and doing communion on a weekly basis as Anglicans, um that was the hope for the American Methodism. But when you didn't have an ordained priest at your church every week, you know, you might have had him once a month or once a quarter. Mm-hmm. That's when you did communion. So some of those things that, you know, real high church that we think of the Episcopal Church and the, Angli- or the Roman Catholic Church and um, even still today of those kind of things. Yeah got pushed to the wayside, not because they weren't important when they came to America's, but just for practicality's sake. Necessity. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So one of the things I think it'll be interesting for us to explore in the rest of this conversation and in future episodes is even the differences um, between what the, the, the practice of faith looks like in the old country back in Europe mm-hmm. and what it looked like coming to America. And in, in a lot of traditions, I don't think this is just Methodism, and I know Lutheranism has a similar uh, uh, parallel story too, where th- the the question of people coming to what became the United States, there was a question of how much of the old system do we bring along with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it was a matter of necessity, not a theological change. Of it, it, So it's sounding like it was, it was less like American Methodist founding figures said... We're now opposed to having weekly communion so mm-hmm. much as it was. Well, that's just not possible all the time. So we're going to yeah. do the best we can here. Um, it, that that's interesting. Like as as a movement, then that um, Methodism doesn't doesn't uh, define itself in terms of to be Methodist is you have communion so many times and you mm-hmm. believe this. But but it was more like this: we want to be people who are intentional about living out our faith. When we're not inside a church building kind yeah. of thinking. And that what that might look like could be very, very diverse or different mm-hmm. in not only in the Sunday experience, but in the rest of our lived life. But there's some sense of we need to be intentional with each other in, I'm guessing, like accountability is an important piece of what those groups or classes are about.
1: It, it was, and I think that's something that got lost when Methodism crossed the pond okay. and came over to the States. And, you know, like the Sunday school movement kind of got started and that kind of took... The place of those weekly accountability groups, mm-hmm. and for me personally, as somebody who's done some some extra study in that area and really appreciates that part of our history, I think that's um, a lot of the the skewness and the division that has happened to Methodism over the last you know couple centuries here mm-hmm. in the United States has happened because we have lost that mm-hmm. part okay. of our history. Because there's very few Methodists even today. Uh, I didn't know about classes and bands until I went to seminary.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Yeah. And I'm I basically, outside my baptism, born and raised. And That's interesting this.
0: Interesting, because like we we people still use the word class all the time to talk about, oh, a group of people who are learning from a curriculum, and we think, oh, well, you have classes, well, we still have classes. But no, this is in a technical sense of a group of people whose job is not, we're all going to necessarily study the same Bible story together, but we're going to talk about living out our faith in each mm-hmm. other's lives right now. And that's a leap that, yeah, Some and, and I, certainly this isn't limited to Methodism, a lot of places our, our Christian practice has dropped that, if yeah. we ever had it.
1: I mean, like the societies, which were like the a smaller church that met outside of Sunday morning Anglican worship, could almost be more like the Bible, study, yeah. you know, like the larger teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it still looked more like a church service, and mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily like a Bible study like what you and I would lead today. Yeah. Um, but you know that's where you got more instruction in the classes and bands, and were truly that accountability where you had certain questions that you had to answer, and and you had to be a part of these classes. And if you missed too many of them, then you were kicked out of the society until you could come oh, back. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I mean, it was very strict, very rule following. Again, the, the method to sure, the madness sure, sure. of metho- that is Methodism, and um, so. But I think a, a lot of what has skewed the Methodist Church and has allowed us to become so. Diverse, of, in, in some ways, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that that's all bad, um, but you know, I think we've lost our way. If I can be critical of my own denomination, um, in a lot of things, and I think part of that is the loss um, of these classes and bands and holding each other accountable to what it means to live the Christian life mm-hmm. Monday through Saturday and the other. Twenty-three hours of Sunday morning.
0: Sure. Can I can I ask you this question? Because this is one that I, I I think I wrestle with, and I, I imagine people of whatever stripe of faith, whatever whatever way they describe that uh-huh. that faith, um, wrestle with. And that that's um, th- th- there's clearly an importance for taking your faith seriously. That it, that it shows up in ways that are noticeable uh, in in your life. Um, but also then the question of what if the way I live out my faith looks different from what my neighbor and the way they live out their faith? Like, how how do you suppose? What what do you know about like how how do the Wesleys or the, the other later leaders, the Cokes, the Asbury's, and others like? Um, how how would they uh, approach the the I guess diverse kind of experience that somebody mm-hmm. might I mean if, in, if if in a class at least that's got men and women in it and married and single together, like. Someone might say, "Well, I'm struggling with you know this part of my life," and mm-hmm. there's someone else. Well, I'm dealing with this thing in my life. And and how do you how do you deal with the temptation not to just make it sort of a uniform? Well, we all it all it all has to look like this, or everybody it you or for that matter, like how do you how do you deal with the, the temptation to either on the one hand say, "Well, it, do, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to be different. I can't give you any advice mm-hmm. at all," or on the other hand, saying, "My advice is fit this cookie cutter. Everybody has to have this this your life has to look like this." Um, all the way down to here's how you should dress and here's yeah. what colors you're allowed to like and here's what your house should be like.
1: So the questions weren't so much that cookie cutter kind yeah. of mentality you were talking about. They were things like, where have you faced sin in your life this week? Okay. Where have you faced temptations? How have you overcome it? How have you not overcome it? Okay. And how can we help you and support you to better overcome it yeah. the next time around? Okay. So it's not so much like... You have to like this style of music, and you have to go to you know this place to worship, and you have to wear these types of clothes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're very conservative and and um, you know methodical, but but not so much that way. Okay. It's more you know how can we support you in your walk and say, okay, you know what, this is a temptation I faced this week, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is how I dealt with it—good, bad, the ugly—and yeah. um, then you know you. And by meeting week by week by week, you know, hopefully, you know, eventually you're able to overcome one temptation. And, of course, being Christians and being humans, you know, we're going to face another temptation. Well, then, you know, you work that same process. Okay, Mm -hmm. I faced this temptation this week. This is how I dealt with it. Probably not so well.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Next week you face a temptation. Did a little bit better this week, but I backed up a little bit, you know. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it was more that that kind of mentality than th- this cookie cutter. You have to okay, look okay. like X, Y. You have to check off X, Y, and Z. Gotcha,
0: gotcha, gotcha. It's interesting then, that in some ways it sounds to me like, and help correct me because this maybe I may be misperceiving it, but it sounds like what the the society's classes, and bands were trying to do uh, is fairly similar to what. The, the the best of intention monasticism was meant to do, about, like, mm-hmm. that here's a community of people who will hold you accountable to living your life uh, in light of your faith in Jesus mm-hmm. Christ in ways that are serious, that, that filter down all the way down to how I do my daily chores around the house and letting every moment be permeated toward this is something that matters to God. Um, and that maybe where monasticism... Uh, went awry or had problems, I'll, I'll say, as a Protestant, is that it ended up sort of sounding like this was an exclusive group for a small subset mm-hmm. of people. And most people don't need to worry about this, but there's this, like, super VIP club, and they are so devoted. And on top of that, they're super devoted, so they'll never get married or have kids. And uh, as though to say, if you do get married or have kids, well, you can't really be a super disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the idea behind Methodism and the Holy Clubs, the societies, the bands, was to say... This is like everybody's invited into this kind of an in-depth way of practicing their faith. Um, And instead of going to a separate place called a monastery to Mm -hmm. practice your faith, we're just going to set aside time in our week, and we're going to gather at somebody's house and do this, or gather in a group. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't have to leave the world. We're going to live our lives out in the midst of the Mm -hmm. world, but do the things that the best of the monastic traditions were all about. That it wasn't just we follow the rule thinking we're impressing God, but here's a community of brothers or of sisters who... Will help us to when we're wrestling with things or when we have questions, and that it's about living that life beyond just when we happen to be in a church service.
1: Yeah. So you you take like the monastic role and then you put it back into society, yeah. And mm-hmm. rather than excluding yourself and and even like the desert mothers and fathers, who really yeah. you know ex, you know became hermits uh, to an extent. Yeah, living that that out. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair way of talking about it. Well, and I think
0: I, I don't remember which of the desert fathers, but I think I remember hearing once one of the desert fathers giving advice to like a young would-be hermit (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. or someone who wanted to come out and follow them in the desert who said that don't come out into the desert to live with us out here if that's your way of escaping the world, but only Mm -hmm. if this is your way of being more fully present for the sake of the world. And that that sometimes even monasticism either got abused or got misunderstood as we need to retreat away from the, Mm -hmm. the wicked, sinful world and we'll just be in this little island of perfection. And instead... At its best, it was, you know, we're here for the sake of the wider community, but we need to be in this community of, of accountability where we can be living out our life meaningfully mm-hmm. and sincerely and not just treat Sunday morning as the only time that our faith shows up. Um, but it's all of our lives. And so, if, in a sense, Christianity has always, it sounds like, struggled with... the. Uh, the tension between there's this free and radical welcome. Anybody, you, mm-hmm. you're you beloved by God and at the same time that the really rigorous challenge of how do we live out this faith seriously all the time um, and that shows up in one chapter of Christian history like the various kinds of monasticism but also uh, in, in 18th century England in what becomes Methodism um, and then that comes over to the United States. Yeah. Interesting. That's
1: interesting. And uh, Wesley very much so he made a lot of people angry. He didn't just have women problems. He had problems with authority sometimes too, uh, which may have gotten from his father and eventually got kicked out of all the churches in England. Yeah. Okay. And, um, to the point there, there's this great story and we, we went and visited Samuel's grave, his father's grave where Wesley, because he had been kicked out of the church, decided to just preach from his father's grave and, you know, just preach from a bunch of different areas. And, um, there's a quote of Wesley's that's pretty well-known, uh, at least within the Methodist movement, maybe even perhaps outside the Methodist movement, the, the world is my parish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Wesley, it, it took him some convincing. Uh, a friend of his, George Whitfield, kind of had to convince him that, you know, preaching in a field is just as effective and right and good and godly as preaching in a, in a raised pulpit mm-hmm. in, a, in a cathedral in England mm-hmm. because Wesley would never have any of that um, himself, being mm-hmm. a good Anglican priest. Sure. You're always preaching the the elevated pulpit with your nice robes and everything. Um, and, and that's, you know, he was very much, once he got kicked out of all the cathedrals uh, throughout London, you know, said, fine, you know, I'll go preach to the miners. Yeah. And I mean, was known to preach to thousands um, out in the out in the fields. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's not that monasticism where you separate yourself from the world. But he's mm-hmm. like, okay, the church has kicked me out. I'll go to the people that
0: are out in the world. It it reminds me too that like sometimes as as church as a two thousand year old institution. Um, we forget our own roots. That for a number of centuries, we were the underground illegal mm-hmm. religion and that we weren't preaching in our own buildings. That we were, you know, it was going to the marketplace or going to the, uh, the edge of the water where they suspected there might be a place of prayer like Acts mm-hmm. talks about it, or just going wherever, to whatever town and striking up the conversation with people or, or beginning to, to speak and meet people where they're at there. So there's something that is very, very authentic about that. Yep. And that we forget that and, and sometimes can treat it like, oh no, God's word only is spoken in these official holy buildings. Mm-hmm. and yet the flip side can be there are ways where that like preacher in the middle of the street corner can be like misused too and because I've run into plenty of people over the years who do the I'm, the, I'm trying to channel the spirit of of, of the Wesleys by preaching on the street corner and there's no room for like they've just made it a monologue of just yeah. like I'm going to yell and shout at whoever walks by um, and that that has a way of <laughs> of, of not, not grabbing the attention they think it will Um, And sometimes leaving a bad taste in people's mouth as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's almost to me like neither one of those is the right answer, that it's not like you should only preach in a church in a pulpit or you should only be out in the field. But context is really important here. Yeah. Um, Can I ask, as someone who is now, who's part of a a tradition like yours that uh, has been around for like 300 years, give or take... Mm what, on a, on a regular basis, maybe not daily, but what on a regular basis from these um, older brothers and sisters in the faith, what what do you take from them that is helpful or useful for you in your daily life or in ministry now?
1: Um. So I talked about the classes and bands, and mm-hmm. I, I've been a part of... We call it a covenant group. Okay. Um, it's a little bit different than the classes and bands because we have like certain goals okay. that we um, hold each other accountable to, but I've been part of this group for about four or five years now, and uh, we meet every week. Now, I've moved away from them. They they were from my previous parish, uh, but I still call in every week and, and talk to them, um, and, I, and I tell you what, it, it's made a world of difference in my own personal life, in my own personal walk. Um because of that level of accountability, um, there, there are things that I was never good at doing as as a Christian. And even as a pastor, I still continue to fail to miserably, like, you know, reading scripture every day outside of sermon prep and Bible study. You know, obviously doing it for those things, but mm-hmm. not anything for my own personal mm-hmm. growth. And um, that's one of our goals. And that to know that I'm talking to this group uh, of sisters and a brother in Christ every week and, and having to say to them, no, I didn't do my daily devotions mm-hmm. again <laughs> this week, or I, I only did them for, you know, three out of the last seven days or something, mm-hmm. has um has really helped me because, well, part of that was, you know, maybe a little bit of guilt and shame that, you know, pushed me to that. Now that I've gotten into the habit of doing it, mm-hmm. um, I'm finding my own faith deepened, uh, my own knowledge of scripture deepened, and so then my preaching and teaching can be deeper because I'm making connections, um, you know, with, with texts and with scriptures that maybe I wouldn't read on my own, um, but by using devotions or this year I'm working through a chronological Bible, you know, trying to read through the whole Bible in a year, which is something I've not done. I've mm-hmm. never read mm-hmm. through the Bible in a certain amount of time. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm making connections that, you know, as I'm preaching on, on certain texts, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember now that that story from there and, and these different things. Um, and so I really appreciate what, John and Charles and the Holy Club started and that became the Methodist movement and that accountability. And, um, I've been trying to get it to work in my, in my churches and it's just, um, there's still a lack of, of interest in it. I think people were afraid of judgment, Mm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. because those groups can become very judgmental very quickly if they're not done the right way. Right. Um, but you know, I'm going to keep pushing it. I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to keep, You know, talking to my people about it and and encouraging them to find somebody, even if it's not a group, if it's just you know um, being like Paul and having a Barnabas and a Timothy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, somebody that you're you're teaching and that you're mentoring and somebody who's mentoring and teaching you Mm -hmm. um, is something that I think every Christian needs to have.
0: So, so as a takeaway, the the what it looks like could be different, but the idea that we don't do this alone Mm -hmm. and that we do this—I like the way you said it—that there's both somebody from whom you are always learning and someone that you are also raising up to that you're not the end point of the the, the, the project either. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, well, cool. Um, uh, any final thoughts or things that you want to uh, leave our conversation with?
1: I'll leave you with John Wesley's death quote, which is, the best of all, God is with us.
0: That'll preach. Well, <laughs> uh, hey, thanks for listening to us this time in the conversation here on Crazy Faith Talk. We'll catch up with you next time.
1: See you guys.